Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Whelan, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. And the book, we have a book now. We talked about it before. It was in the process, and here it is. Tell me a little bit about it. How was it trying to start it in the first place? Hi, Robbie. Thanks for having me back on again. Uh, yes, the book is uh, is now here. Um, it's called Mind Games, The Assassination of John Lennon. Um, how did it start? Uh, it started in 2020, in the spring. Uh, it was locked down. Uh, I've said this before uh, many times. The, the first few weeks of lockdown, Robbie, I actually quite enjoyed. Uh, I hated lockdown and I was against lockdown, but I kind of liked the fact that the world was put on pause. So I didn't feel guilty about um, about stopping working and just doing things I really wanted to do, like go for walks and read books. Um, so I was on a walk and I was listening to a podcast and I heard about the doorman at the Dakota possibly being a CIA operative. I, I literally went home that afternoon and started to started to look into it. And I had no intention of doing a book or a, a documentary series or anything like that. It was just kind of, let's just look into this. This sounds interesting. Because I've always been into the JFK assassination after Oliver Stone's film. So I just literally started jotting down, I don't know, two or three pages worth of um, of notes. And then I, it got to 10 pages and it got to 20 pages and then it got to 50 pages and then it got to 100 pages. And I started to think, OK. And I started to learn more and more. And I started to talk to more and more people. And once I started to talk to people, I started to realize that the official story just didn't make sense. And that started to trouble me. And then I got to the medical people. I got to the doctors and nurses. And once I found out what they had to say about John's actual real wounds and not the wounds we were told he had, which is incredibly like JFK, uh, you know, to be blunt, and JFK, as everyone knows, we were told he was shot from the back, but we all know he was shot in the front. Uh, and it's the same thing with Lennon. We were told Lennon was shot in the back, but he was actually shot in the front. So... When I figured that one out, I was like, okay, if he's shot in the front and Chapman's standing behind him, this is a problem. Um, so I just started to go deeper and deeper into it. And then once I, I kind of started talking to people who were there at the Dakota working that night, and then I started to talk to people who knew Mark Chapman, and then I started to talk to some cops, and I started to talk to the lead detective. And, and I, I, I don't know how I did it, but I just managed to talk to everybody pretty much, apart from Yoko, uh, who doesn't ever want to talk about it. Um, and I, I, I realized that it was just that it was just so obvious that it was a conspiracy. And Chapman was a, a Manchurian patsy, not Manchurian assassin. Very big difference uh, it, as far as I was concerned. And um, and the evidence pointing towards that, I think, as people will know when they read the book, it's overwhelming. It's just it's just and it's also you can see it. You can see how it was all put together, when it was put together, why it was put together. And you can also see, I think, with the conspiracy as well, Rob, it's really important to note this. It's what happens after the conspiracy. It's the cover-up. And it's the way the media is manipulated and the way the media feeds you misinformation and lies that really give away the mechanics of the conspiracy. But the, the real big problem I have with this one, Robbie, more than the JFK and the RFK um, assassinations, is the guy who allegedly did it admitted to everyone that he did it. He said, yeah, I did it. and Locked me up. Uh, so that was a massive problem because there was, well, you know, the guy, the guy who did it said he did it and he's in jail. So what are you doing? You know, that, that's basically a lot of a reaction I'm getting at the moment. And of course, once you start to talk to people about MKUltra and hypnotism and CIA operatives and, and you start to tell people, that, do you understand how Manchurian candidates work and how this, 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 you know, this is put together? Even then, they can't get their head around it. So it's 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 been a, let's put it this way, Rob. It's been a hard sell, but I'm absolutely convinced. And the few people that have read the book now, they all just their reaction is, "Oh my god, oh my god, 
oh my god i can't believe this i can't believe this 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 is incredible it's just overwhelming the evidence is overwhelming and it is overwhelming robbie and what i'm fascinated to see once the book comes out is how the people who put it together manage being uh having a light shone on them. because for 43 years i think the people who did put it together some sadly are dead they got away with it but some i think are still around and I think what's happened is, Robbie, they've got quite sloppy. I think because if you look at every single John Lennon documentary and book and, and newspaper article, magazine article, they're, they're all pro-official narrative story. There's never never once does someone come slightly out. There was one writer called Fenton Brezler in the 80s who, who tried to sort of bring this up with a brilliant book called Who Killed John Lennon? But that quickly got sort of glossed over. There was another guy in 2010 who did a fairly poor effort called Phil Strongman. But again, he tried and that got glossed over. And that's it. So everybody that watches anything about this on TV or reads about it, they get the official narrative thrown, thrown at them pretty much word for word. And I think what's happened is the people behind it have kind of got the Cuban cigars out and gone, you know what? We've got away with this. Uh, the world has pretty much bought this hook, line and sinker. Uh, so I think this book is what I really hope it's going to do, Robbie, is it's going to open the conversation up again. Uh, across the board and people are going to start asking questions and, and people are going to start demanding um you know information is disclosed from the mypd the da's office the fbi and possibly even mi5 and mi6 there's a lot of files on john lennon that hasn't been released yet there's a lot of files on the murder that hasn't been released yet there's a lot of photography that hasn't been released there's a lot of witness statements that haven't been released so i want all that to come out and if i'm wrong if there was no conspiracy and it was mark chapman and there's nothing to see here Fine. Okay. Once it's all out there and we've discussed it properly and we've seen all the evidence and we've heard all the evidence now, a lot of it's been concealed. I think once people make up their mind and read it, I'm fairly convinced they'll all go, wow, this is a horrendous conspiracy to take out a future critic of, of a warmongering um, administration. Are you... Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> that was really good. Are you hoping that you're going to be able to pull people who are interested in John Lennon as a person and his uh, tribute, I guess, his attributing to the Beatles or creation of the Beatles, the whole makeup of the Beatles? You're going to pull in that crowd to actually learn about a political assassination, an event that we might historically be remembering in a very wrong way. I mean, that discussion, the here's the assassin, he admitted to it, so he must have did it. When you try and explain to someone MK Ultra. Or just say anything like that. You can't do that. What you have to say is the response I usually get, read the book. But you really do have to read it because you have to take people to the process. You have to get them to that conspiracy point. And that's what's really, really important. And you did that on our first episode. And it opened my mind up to understanding the MK Ultra relations with Mark Chapman. But are you hoping to hopefully get people in my generation, other people away from just not only his part in the Beatles, but also to the truth of his assassination as well too, or his death? It's a good question. Um, I think most Beatles fans that are really on the kind of, let's put it obsessive scale, uh, don't really care about John's life. They're just kind of obsessed about the fantasy of the music and the lovely colorful uh, costumes in Sgt. Pepper and that amazing G chord that Paul used, you know, on some particular album track. So they're so deep into the music and the kind of, they're so deep into the, the, the pop culture side of the Beatles. Uh, I find most of them just don't want to go anywhere near the dark stuff. So they just don't, they don't touch. And there's been this fantastic campaign, which is a good point to talk about this, um, 
there's there was an assistant prosecuting DA guy, guy called Kim Hogreth, who, who turns up in every single John Lennon documentary and he reels out the same line. He says, Mark Chapman did it for fame. He did it, he was a nobody, he shot John to be famous, which is completely untrue. All the evidence points to the fact that Mark was not looking for fame. He's done two TV appearances in 43 years. He was coerced into doing those rehearsed TV appearances. He's never done another TV appearance. He gets countless offers to do media and he just says no. He's never written a book. He's never written an article. He's, he's not doing it for fame. But Kim, Kim has really pushed this hard because they, they're, they're desperate not to get to the real reasons why Mark did it and why, why he felt or, or why he thought he was doing it, why he felt compelled to do it. Um, so they kind of, by saying he was just his loser who wanted to do it for fame, it's a nice tidy package. But what came from that was once people bought Kim constantly repeating this mantra, they thought, okay, where does this go next? Okay, if he was doing it for fame, then we never mention his name, we won't give him the fame. So whenever you go on the Beatles forum or any forum or any particular comments str uh, string, they all say the same thing. What are you doing? Why are you saying this guy's name? You know, it's what he wanted. Don't talk about him. And therefore that then moves on to, to an extension. Don't talk about the murder. You're not allowed to talk about Mark Chapman and mention his name. So don't mention the murder. Let's move on, which is brilliant. It was a brilliant device, which I'm sure has been promoted through algorithms. And, and I'm sure it's been promoted by people who probably go in there and just say, oh, don't mention the guy who wanted fame. Let's move on. And it's kind of worked. Um, so I think a lot of those people who are still brainwashed into thinking that Mark Chapman did it for fame, he's the most evil man who ever lived, who took away their icon. I don't think, Robbie, to be honest, those people are ever going to get on board with me. I, I just think they're so they're so... They've been so conditioned and so brainwashed. But getting back to your original point about the young people of today, yeah, I think they will. I think they will. I think some will pick it up, hopefully. And I think some will, will learn a lot more about just John Lennon's assassination. They'll learn about the CIA, MK Ultra. They'll learn about all the previous assassinations and the links between them and John Lennon's murder. They'll learn about what the Reagan administration and the Bush administration did after John Lennon was assassinated and how that assassination was a very convenient uh, way of... of, of, of executing, let's call it what it was, it was an execution, executing a, a critic, a very, a very prominent, powerful critic of that administration or administrations. Um, so, yeah, I think young people hopefully will be interested in it. I, but uh, do you know what, Robbie, I think young people have had a really hard time the last three, four years. And I think young people at the moment, if I was young, if I, I mean, you're amazing. You're an outlier, I think. You know, you just, you've got this obviously a really inquisitive brain and you, you, I listen to a lot of your podcasts and you're constantly looking for new information and to understand the world. But I think an awful lot of young people, and I must admit when I was in my early twenties, I'd have been the same. Just want to have a good time. Just, just, they don't want to hear about it. They just want to like, just, where's the club? Where's the bar? Uh, I just want to enjoy life. You know, I think people understand when they're young, and rightly so, and I did myself, you know, you're only young for a very short period of time. And once you start getting more information on board in your late 20s and your 30s and your 40s, once, again, to coin a cliche, once you've taken that red pill, you can't untake it. So once you really understand the world and you actually go beyond the news and start to research what's behind the news, you can't unknow it. So I think a lot of young people know that instinctively and they know there's darkness on the edges, but they're they prefer just to stay in this very safe, comfortably numb, narrow view of the world that they're given. They're spoon fed every night by the by the Daily News. And um, and I, I can understand them. I can understand them doing that. But I, I think the people that hopefully are going to push my book forward 
are probably the people outside of those Beatles obsessors and outside of the uh, outside of the young people who who don't want to kind of upset their fun view of the world. Um, I, I think anybody else who doesn't fit those two categories, hopefully, would jump on board. But it, it's impossible to tell. I mean, I think I, I did try to put in brief links between JFK and RFK and MLK because there are links for sure, CIA being one of them. Um, and I tried to put those links in and I tried to show people how we got here from that time. You know, Lennon didn't happen in isolation. It, it built up, I believe, since the Second World War, where you know about Operation Paperclip and you know about MKUltra, all the Nazis that piled into America uh, horrifically from after the Second World War. Um, so, you know, they, to me, they're the, they're the roots, they're the dark roots of the world we have today. Uh, and I think something like the Lennon assassination can allow people to see those roots. Obviously, I don't focus too much on it because I've got a big murder to unravel. Um, but, yeah, I, I hope it will get a broad church, Robbie. I hope it gets lots of different ages and lots of different people interested in different things. But who can tell? You know, you just you put it out there. You try and make it accessible. And, you know, you have to just wait and see what happens. You find that through your perspective from what you've come in contact with people with interactions that a lot of people do not really believe the official narrative when it comes to the John Lennon assassination. I mean, I'm in my own JFK bubble where everyone kind of disagrees with the official narrative, but that one's more public distrust of the government on that one. I think the John Lennon one doesn't get as much attention as it really should. Like you said, a lot of people care about the Beatles music and uh, stuff like that, but the actual assassination, do you find that you come across a lot of people that really don't buy the Mark Chapman did it idea? Um, yeah, uh, I, I think there's some, um, there's some who I, I'm surprised how many people sort of went, yeah, there was always something about that that didn't sit right. Like the Stephen Lynn coming out and lying about all this for 30 something years. That's mind blowing. Yeah. Lynn helped the, with the Lynn exposure, which happened, what, 2010, 2011. So once, once that got exposed, it was like, oh, that guy wasn't the real doctor. The problem was the real doctor, Dr. David Halloran, the doctor who can confirm that he was shot in the front four times. Uh, he's not what's called the most vocal of guys, and uh, he doesn't like the spotlight. And even when he came out in 2011 and said it wasn't Lynn, it was me that treated Lennon, nobody asked him the question, oh, do you want to tell us about the wounds? Literally nobody. If you, if you look at all the interviews of Halloran from 2011 onwards, he talks about trying to save John and pumping his heart, which is all true. But not one single reporter or journalist says, so just, just remind us again, Dr. Haddon, where were the wounds? They never did it in 1980, and they're not doing it now. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't go in this kind of conspiracy that all, all mainstream news is part of the matrix, and they're all, you know, they're just, they're just lazy, and they're just rubbish. You know, I've, I've worked in mainstream news. I, I know how it works. I know what a mainstream journalist does. They do what they're told to do. They don't, they don't come out, they don't go off message. They, they're given a story. This is the story you're doing today. And they know by osmosis what the angle is on that story. Okay. Yeah, they, yeah. And they might even Wikipedia it, to be honest. It wouldn't surprise me. Okay. What well, Wikipedia saying about this guy? Okay. Yes, yeah, his background. Right. We're going to do the story. Then they're not invested with journalists. They don't go digging. They're just not built that way. They used to be back in when I first worked in television in the 80s. You wouldn't get a documentary on screen unless it had something new to say, unless it was uncovering something, then they'd say, okay, that's, that's a documentary worth making. Every single TV documentary today says nothing that you don't already know. It's like, this guy's a bad guy. And we're going to tell you again what a bad guy is. This organization, dreadful. We're going to tell you again just how dreadful this organization is. 
Tell me something new. Tell me, what about if that bad guy is actually a good guy? What if they're organized? You know, tell me about an organization I don't know about. Tell me, tell me something I don't know. But they don't do that because, and it's not just because they're cowards. There's also legal implications now. I think back in the day, this is going to surprise you, Robbie. When I worked at Thames Television in the early 80s, which was a big London broadcaster, well, it was the biggest in, in the UK, for sure. Um, we didn't have a legal department. There were no lawyers. It's just like, if it was something really contentious, you might farm it out to a, a, a law firm and say, just have a quick look at this, guys, make sure this is all okay. Now, in TV, the, the legal departments are the biggest departments. So everything goes through them. And if something concerns them, a lawyer is not going to put his neck on the line and go, I think you should put that out because, you know, it's, it's something that needs to be told and people need to know about it. He's going to go, mm, this is contentious, don't do it. Don't do this, don't say this, don't do that. And all that lawyer's doing, he's not, he's not trying to... He's not trying to sort of be an arbiter of what's truth. He's trying to cover his ass. He's trying to protect his job. So if, he, if they just say anything that's contentious, they go, don't do that. That could get us in trouble. I've had producers, Robbie, really senior producers recently, who I've talked to about projects that you could call conspiratorial. And I can see the terror in their eyes from that Dallas phrase, you know, that Dallas created phrase, conspiracy theorists. They, they, I think it's the thing that, they would most not want to be called. They'd probably be preferred, they'd prefer to be called a Nazi or a far-right fascist than a conspiracy theorist. I can see, I can see, I can see their little brains whirring going, oh, if we do this, if we make this, I might get called a conspiracy theorist and my career is finished in, in my kind of polite media circles that I swim in. Because uh, my mates kind of go, oh, isn't that crazy story about that? What are you doing that for? And it's, it does come down to cowardice, but I think there is that legal element, Robbie, where TV departments and, and news outlets as well and, and, newspaper, and newspaper offices as well, they all have a lot of legal influence now. And, 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 those, and lawyers pretty much run the show. Uh, and the power that lawyers have is incredible. I, you know, I, I saw this shift in the 90s where, where in television, lawyers actually started to run TV companies, not just be powerful within them. They started to be the guys who were running the show, literally. Uh, and that can't be a good thing when you're trying to get out contentious information. I mean, are you nervous when it comes to book sales? I mean, that's a big thing. Obviously, you're creating a book. You're hoping that it's going to be able to sell and get out there to the public. But we're talking about algorithms and other things, censorship. I've experienced censorship. I'm sure you probably have experienced censorship as well, too. It's a really big problem. I mean, they can chalk it up to algorithms. It's a machine that does it, that accidentally flags it. or But there is real silencing from news networks. I'm in agreement with that. There's silencing from a lot of people because it, there's a lot to put on the line when you do something like this. To us, it might just be like, hey, I'm just reporting what the facts are here. I'm just give, showing this. That's not incentivized by any of news networks. It's not incentivized by newspapers. I mean, I was surprised to even Google Dr. Stephen Lynn's name and see that, oh, this doctor didn't actually treat John Lennon. It was up there on the results. But if you're talking about making a documentary or something like that, I mean, we could talk about the one that's coming out with John Lennon uh, that has a little bit of things different about it. But there's obviously a silencing of certain things and if you're trying to make you know something and want people to see it if you're silenced from amazon silence from all these distributors i mean is that a fear for you for sure for sure i mean at the point of distribution you're being throttled i think um you'd like to think that you you know sales and, and merit will allow you to be somewhere in the mix but um i'm hoping the book will be word of mouth 
Uh, I, I, I got when I when I broke the story back in April of this year. Uh, amazingly, I got a very mainstream, uh, powerful um, news outlet called the Mail Online to to cover the story, and I did that through um, mainstream people I know who knew people at the Mail, and we contacted them, and, and the Mail said, "Yeah, come in and." prove your case and they made me prove my case they said okay where's your evidence let's see the documents let's hear what you've got to say and um once i pleaded my case they went yeah okay we think there's a story here we'll run it and they did they ran two stories they ran a story about my theory about a second shooter which is amazing and they ran another story about the two different types of bullets that were found in john lennon so that you know that that to me was it gave me hope Robbie, that, you know, if the truth, if, if you can back up what you're saying with evidence, and I do, my book backs it all up. Because what, what was an amazing thing that really turned this whole investigation for me was when I got talking to the lead detective, Ron Hoffman, who's in his 80s now. Um, he still remembers just about everything. And we were having, I must have spoken to him about four or five times. And one of my early conversations, I said to him, have you ever thought about writing a book, uh, Ron? He said, no, I'm a bit too old for that now. He said, but I've got all my notebooks and paperwork from the case still. I said, oh, yeah. I said, well, I'm sure someone would be interested in, um, you know, doing a book just on those. He said, well, do you want them? Do you want to, do you want to get hold of them? I said, yeah, yeah, I'd really like to get hold of them. Uh, so I sent my lawyer over to uh, meet him and his family. Uh, we did it all properly with contracts. Uh, so we weren't, we weren't seen to be exploiting an old man. And um, we've got, we've got, we got all the stuff. We've got all the evidence. So, and it's not just what's in those notebooks and paperwork, Robbie, that's important. What's important is what's not in there is often just as important. What's, uh, what evidence wasn't actually recorded on the night at the scene. Stuff like that is very important, I think. So once I got hold of that, it's very hard for people to now say to me that I don't know what people said at the time witnesses that we don't know about because i've got their statements in one's books so I've, I've got all the witness statements now i've got five from yoko so there is there's a lot of new stuff coming in the book now and i, I think when people read it pretty much everybody bar jose padermo the doorman uh whose statement has still not been released to the public it may yet come out soon i don't know if it does i'll, I'll be still be quite skeptical about the worth of it because i think jose is a slightly suspicious individual uh, he's not bad pigs jose by the way i think we discussed that last time he's still a man of great interest for me uh, i've got a pretty good idea what he did i don't think he saw much but if we I get corrected people on the bay of pigs thing and everyone's like no he was it was the same guy i was like no it wasn't no I, they I don't like that yeah that, that 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 red herring's been out for about 20 years now and people cherish their theories i think more than they cherish their children uh, sometimes and um when I say to people that there's clear evidence now, it's 100% pretty much, let's say 99%. This is not Bayer Pigs, Jose Padermo working the door. Uh, they get very angry. They get very upset because their theories, they, I don't know what it is. They, they, maybe their theories define them. I don't know how that theory could define someone. But, um, yeah, that one, that one we need to put to bed. So we haven't got Jose's, but I've pretty much got every other witness testimony, Robbie. Um, so once you put all them together, especially the cops and the Dakota workers who were there and saw stuff, you can pretty much figure out now what happened that night. And what happened that night is not what we were told happened that night, not by a long stretch. Uh, and I think when people find out the truth, I think they're going to be angry and shocked. But you know what, Robbie, again, getting back to a previous question about do I think this will break through? 
the reason why I think it may not is, and not not that the book might not, the book might do well, but the actual truth might break through, is because look at look at the Zapruder film, Robert. I mean, for me, that film is about as clear as day that JFK was shot in the front. Right? It, it, it can't, you know, how they tried to say that you know he was shot in the back and he, he somehow went back into the bullets. Please don't insult our intelligence. It's just. It's just a matter of physics. I'm no physics expert, but that one's pretty straightforward. He was shot in the front. So we've got we've got films showing us he was shot in the front. Yeah, you go to Wikipedia, still, the, the BS lines of uh, is still Lee Harvey Oswald from the back. So I'm hopeful, but the Zapruder film for me is a salient sort of lesson and point that, you know, even if I managed to rock up with some CCTV footage, which I haven't got, by the way, but even if I did, they'd still spin it somehow that, you know, I'm wrong. Because ultimately there's a lot of reputations at State, Robbie. There's a reputation of the DA's office. There's a reputation of the NYPD. There's a reputation of every journalist that's ever worked since 1980 to now. Uh, and they're all, they've all bought it, hook, line and sinker. And some of them, like the NYPD and DA's office, sold it. So for them now to go, oh, yeah, we got it wrong. Yeah, we were really, we really dropped the ball there. Yeah. It's it was a conspiracy and someone shot him from the front. And Mark Chapman probably was a Manchurian Patsy, brainwashed to think he was doing something he wasn't doing. That's a leap that all of those people I've just mentioned will never be able to make. Because and, and do you know what the main point, the main reason, Robbie, why they won't be able to make that leap is ego. It's I've worked in the media for over 40 years. People at the sharp end in the news, the people who are doing quite well. Have got massive egos, massive. They think they they think they're healing the world. They think they're doing an amazing service. Sometimes they do, but that ego is out of control. And the one thing they're never going to do is go, "Yeah, got that one wrong." Yeah, sorry about that. Same goes for the NYPD in the DA's office. Again, at the high end of those organisations, you've got big egos who are never going to say, "We're sorry, we got it wrong." So you know. It, it, officially, the truth will never be able to be allowed to settle and, and be fixed. But I'm I'm happy with that because all I had, I mean, the reason I was compelled to do it, Robbie, was is once I started to uncover the information, it became a compulsion to get the information out. I thought I have to let people know about this. I, I can't, and I know this might not be good for me in so many in so many ways. You know, I'm. I'm not one of these guys who think Paul is dead and John faked his death and the earth is flat. You know, the crazy guys. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff out there. I don't go for any of that. I, I have, as I said, I've swum in mainstream waters for quite a while. I had someone mention that Yoko Ono was not a bad person. I was like, I don't think she's a bad person, but she, her singing ain't the best, man. No, no, I'm not a, not a fan of Yoko's music. But but to get back to my point, I was just saying is that I, I think – I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna have a black mark against me now, Rob. If I go back to mainstream television and say I want to do a documentary on X, Y, Z, they go, oh, you're the guy who did that crazy Lennon stuff. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, is this gonna be crazy as well? You need to get the uh, academic community on board with this. I feel like if you show the academic community, like I'll, there's a big disconnect between MK Ultra, all those horrible government operations and projects that are real events that are proven. They know about them much as they use the example. Oh, yeah, like the, the, the ski stuff. It's like, well, hold on. There's a lot worse things out there as well, too, that match that. 
if you just get the academics to read your book and look at how you line up some of this stuff. I mean, I have friends who are academics in covert operations that'll tell you they'll be called a conspiracy theorist, but they're academics who study covert operations. You just need to break through that, get that conspiracy title or label off of you and show that, no, there's academics behind it. Get it to the public. I don't know if you've reached out to any before. Not yet. Not yet. I mean, I'd like, to, I'd, I'd be well up for doing that. I'd, I'd love to talk to academics who could, who could push this in that, in that field. Um, I think what will happen is after, after the book comes out, um, oh, now the book's coming out is there'll be, there'll be a furore. There'll be a little bit of tabloid stuff. Um, there'll be a lot of excitement online, but only in the places I think you'd expect it. Um, I don't think the intellectual broadsheets are going to, I don't think your Washington Post or your Guardian or Sunday Times or whatever, these guys, I I just, again, it comes down to ego. I just don't think they're going to give it the time of day because I think they're just, for them to give it the time of day, it means they got it wrong. And these wonderful, see, education these days, Robbie, is very expensive. You know, in, in the UK, you know, it used to be free back in the day. If you didn't, if you couldn't afford it, you could get an education of, of, a, of a sort of second and third standard level standard university or college. But now you've got to pay, you've got to pay quite a lot of money for it. And uh, you've got to spend a large part of your working life paying that back. So what I think intellectual people who've gone through an expensive education will not ever admit is that even with that expensive education, you still don't really know how the world works. And I think at some level, a lot of people who will look at this, who work in those newspapers and who work in the media, who have that expensive education and that kind of entitlement and the kind of systems doing quite well for them, they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to admit that even with all that expensive education that they managed to accrue, uh, they still don't really know everything that's going on in the world. And I just think there's that kind of cognitive dissonance and it's just much safer to come out with that hideous patronizing line that they all come out with now which is you the reason you're doing this dave is because you just can't face the fact that a nobody killed someone so important so you need to make up something fantastical because you just can't understand that sometimes a nobody does kill someone brilliant and it's so patronizing and it's so well you know use that phrase that that and you know people have written books around that phrase you know and and they're all the same they uh there's a real problem here this is another really interesting thing that i've noticed over the years most people who are skeptical about new information that may be considered conspiratorial seem to come from the left robbie which is really bizarre because the left used to look after the working class and they used to be all about the downtrodden they used to be about exposing corruption and evil but now the left are so conformist uh, to our new um i don't want to call it new world order but our, our, our world as we live in today uh and they're the ones that tend to come down really hard on any new information about any particular area whereas strangely uh, most people i talk to that seem to be more open-minded about these things these days it's not always the same, but most of them seem to come from the right these days, which I find really interesting. I I, I don't or conservative, I yeah, yeah, conservative for sure, libertarians, I suppose you could call them. Um, I I don't sit anywhere on the divide. I think if I if I call myself anything now, I probably would be a libertarian. Um, uh, growing up as a as a teen, early twenties, like most young people, I was an idealistic kind of lefty, 
uh, I think as you get older and you start to see how the world really works, you sort of think oh, that's kind of that doesn't kind of work. Uh, so I kind of parked that, uh, and I still had some kind of left leanings, not leanings. That's the wrong word, but I, I was still sympathetic to a lot of things from the left until COVID turned up, and that absolutely horrified me because I thought, okay, I don't want to be. You know, the left was so into COVID, and this is and they see it. They saw it as their kind of utopian. We're all doing this together. Let's all you know look after each other and let's all go as one. I'm like, yeah, but if you're all going as one down the wrong road, I don't want to go as one. I'd rather step out of that group. Thank you very much. And I had, and that really opened up my eyes to the fact, yeah, I'm probably a libertarian. I'd, I'd rather just be left alone and not be pushed into any particular group. Um, so that was a wake up call. But yeah, the, the, getting back to the thing that, you know, the left and the right is a very strange paradigm at the moment. That the left, uh, and I think you know what it is, Robbie. I think there's another with the more unthinking left. I think they do this equation in their head, Robbie, where if a if a so-called conspiracy theory comes up, or it's something that might be seen that way, they go, okay, conspiracy theory. Oh, that means they must be into uh, QAnon because all conspiracy. If you're a conspiracy theorist now, as you know, you believe everything. You believe every single conspiracy theory that ever was put out there. So conspiracy theories is a plural. It's not like that is a conspiracy theory. If you're into one, you're into all of them. That's the that's what's been sold. So especially with the left. So they go, okay, so you're into QAnon. Oh, that means you're um, that means you must be a raving Trump fan and you must be a raving far-right fascist. Oh my god, every conspiracy theorist is a raving far-right fascist. And I saw a mainstream newspaper, I won't give them the time of day by saying who they are. But recently they were they were writing about the JFK assassination. And I could I thought, here they go. Right, they're gonna say JFK. There's a conspiracy thing. Yeah, there's a next line is conspiracy. Yeah, I thought you'd do that. Oh, there's the next line. Much beloved by far right, far right, you know, people, people of the far right. Okay, there you go. And the only thing that was missing was Hitler or Nazis. They they, they missed the Nazi line. But they pretty much the equation that they were putting out to their readers was conspiracy theory, far right fascist, crazy. Uh, and it's just lazy. It's just lazy and it's just infuriating because not all conspiracy theories are equal, as I said to you earlier. I don't believe Paul faked his death. I don't believe John oh, 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 Paul Paul died and there's a new fake Paul. I'm sure you've heard that bullshit. I don't believe uh, John Lennon faked his death. I don't believe the Tavistock Centre wrote all the Beatles songs. These things are ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. You, can, you know, your logical brain can dismiss these things in... Five seconds. But if I'm sure there's people out there who go, oh, if he's questioning John Lennon's assassination, he probably thinks Paul's dead and he probably thinks this and he probably thinks that and Earth is flat and he thinks QAnon and he thinks it. And it's just lazy. It's just laziness. And I, and I also think it's, it's born out of fear. And it goes back to that thing I was saying to you earlier, Robbie, where people just want to keep their heads stuck in their comfortably numb sand and just keep it there and just get their get their food get their sports get their bread and circuses and and to be fair and I, and I want to be I'm being quite harsh on people here i think modern life grinds you down you know it's it's hard to make a living these days whether you live in america or, or europe and you know most people go from one pay packet to the next one week to the next they're just they're trying to survive uh, zero hour contracts, very little protection now. It, it's hard out there for people. And I think I've had a successful career, so I've got time to do this kind of stuff. But if I was out there doing two or three jobs, which I know some people still my age do, 
I would have no time to do any of this. So, you know, it does boil down to what your energy levels allow you to do. Sorry, there's another long-winded answer there. Sorry, No, we see it with anniversaries of deaths. Everyone seems like they're all interested in it now, and it always trends. Like I saw a bunch of reporters, like top news people that are on Rogan multiple times. Hopefully, we'll get you on there at some point. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll keep sending emails to it. I have his email. I'll send it to you. Um, I've never gotten a response. So, I mean, best of luck. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, he's, he's got the reach, is not he? So it'd be great to get the reach on there. And I, I know he did. A, I, I, I know Tom Neal. I've spoken to Tom Neal a few times. Tom O'Neill was giving me some great advice back in the day about how to how to get information. Tom's a fantastic researcher. And you know, I know his appearance on on Rogan was 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 a big success. Yeah. He answered and, a couple questions. Really well. He answered a couple questions for me about uh, Arlen Specter I had with um the magic because he was gonna meet him and everything, and he had some information that was gonna debunk the single bullet theory, but then he canceled last minute. And Arlen Specter, Phil's dying day, said he would talk to anybody about it if they had new information about the assassination, but he passed away, I think, before Tom met him. But um, all these journalists and newspaper people that are on social media with big platforms usually come out around the anniversary and they want to, you know, they say, hey, break it down for me or do something like this. I mean, I think that's important because it does get some exposure, but I just don't I wish someone would be honest about it and just want to investigate it and look into it on their own rather than not look for the clout that came with it. And that's what I really appreciate about your work is that you kind of weren't looking to be like oh john lennon i'm gonna look and try and find an assassination thing you just found something and it stumbled upon a million other things i mean you don't fight the conspiracy thing you're kind of fighting for the truth because but you're saying something that is a very controversial subject and it's about mark chapman but i think if people really boil down the layers that you've kind of shown a lot of people i mean milton klein an mk ultra guy visiting you know that's if that's not going to raise eyebrows or have people be like, can we question that? If anything, the best that we can do for my JFK work, for your John Lennon work, is just to get people to start questioning. You don't have to even really super research into it, but be open to the question that maybe what I've been told isn't exactly accurate. I mean, I get the working all day and everything like that, but I think it's just also because it's in the past and people want to know stuff that's about the future. You know, that's where their concern is. Everything's 24 hour news cycle. Everything's like every two minutes, something's popping up. That's brand new. But I feel like with some of the questions that you've raised, some of the things we discussed in past episodes, those are going to get people to really start going, wait a minute. Is that true? Is that real? Can I look that up? But it's also about finding that information too. Um, Cause people want to Google on their phone and see what the top result is. So I'm hoping that, like something happens for you there with your book that I hope it trends. I hope a lot of people start realizing I started looking up your name and I was seeing second shooter and John Lennon assassination. It's like, Hey, that's more than most of anybody's got on the JFK stuff, RFK stuff, any of that. So that's a good sign. That is. Yeah. I can thank the mail for that, Robbie, to be fair. I, I think the mail is such a mainstream paper, but once the mail broke, I got contacted by the New York post the very, very same day. And I got contacted by Bill with a big uh, paper in Germany and, I got a lot of traction off that, and I'm hoping I'll get a lot of traction off the book. Um, I, I think, yeah, you're right. I wasn't looking for – I had no theories because I had no idea, Robbie. I, I just thought, oh, yeah, crazy guy shot him, yeah. I, I was 14 at the time when it happened. Didn't even know John Lennon was, really. I, I vaguely knew about the Beatles, but in 1980, for a young kid like me into music, the Beatles were long gone. They were they were 10 years gone, so I had no interest. Uh, and, and I've deliberately not listened to Beatles music. And I've deliberately not listened to John Lennon's music throughout this whole process because I just want to, I, I want to take the emotion out of it. And, and I've, I've been criticized by some people to, for being unemo you know, unemotional about it. 
But I'm doing that deliberately. It's kind of like, I think that's another big problem we've got these days, Robbie, where people just get so emotional. It's like, you can't bring emotion to this. You need to bring a thinking, logical brain. Emotion is not going to work for you to figure this one out. Um, and music makes you emotional, which is why I've not listened to John and Beatles music. Um, the only way you're going to figure it out is to get all the evidence. And of course, these people don't leave receipts and they don't leave plans. So you need to kind of work out what they were doing behind the scenes and you need to work out who was connected to who. And, and you need to figure out timelines and you need to figure out, you know, relationships between people. And you also need to figure out, Robbie, as well with evidence, which is really important in this case, because a lot of people lied to me um, when I when I spoke to them. Is unless, ideally, what you want is you want three people who all say the same thing about the same incident. And if those three people aren't connected, so let's just say you've got a Dakota worker, you've got a cop, and you've got a person walking along the street. And if they all say the same thing, you're onto something. That, that's pretty much a fact. If you've got two of them, you're getting close. If you've got one, then that's just an opinion. And often it can be a wrong opinion. Because again, to be fair, it was 43 years ago. So you have to kind of figure all that. Now to figure all this out, you've got to engage your logical thinking brain. And I don't think people know how to do that anymore, Robbie. An awful lot of people don't know how to do that anymore because they just wait for the news to tell them what to think. They just sit there okay, tell me what, 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 what do I need to think about today and tell me how I need to think about it. And you go to CNN, you'll get it from the left, you get a Fox, you get it from the right. So they, they know where to get their, their particular you know, thought processes from. Uh, they've got their allegiances that they've been ingrained to, to go with. And, and it's just kind of like you need to come away from all that and you need to put a bit of work in, Robbie. You know, you really do. And this book, this book challenges people. I give everybody all the evidence, even evidence that doesn't fit my, my theory sometimes. It's like, oh, that's not great for your theory. Yeah, but it's got to go in because that's what that person said. And if people don't believe that person, great. But if they do, then they need to know what that person said. So I'm, I'm not being choosy here. I'm just throwing it all up there, every single statement, all the different angles and all the different permutations that could have gone down that night and i think once people read it i think they'll be fairly certain that there was a second shooter and i think they'll be horrified and i think once they see what happened to mark chapman after he was arrested up to this very day from the minute he was arrested to now i think they'll realize and i think they'll see the mechanics of the conspiracy because you can i don't think mark chapman was meant to live that night robert i don't know if we discussed this in the first um chat we had but again we should just say this the official narrative just in case anyone's watching this and they don't understand what we're talking about is john lennon was with his wife yoko ono at 10 50 p.m on the 8th of december 1980 came back to his dakota home walked into his dakota driveway arch was heading towards a door at the far right to get into his um, apartments uh, mark chapman a guy from hawaii originally from the south in georgia stood out uh, across near the near the sidewalk got behind john and allegedly shot him five times in the back. Um, so once, uh, and, and that, that's pretty much the theory forever and a day. There's, there's no one who's ever tried to question that. That's kind of, if you go to Wikipedia, that's what it says. The well, wait, Mark Chapman questioned it. He was surprised his gun worked. Yeah, Mark, he did. Yeah, Mark Chapman was, yeah. If you listen to Mark Chapman's statement of the night, he's, he's surprised about the whole thing. I mean, his actual statement before people got to him was, I don't really know what the hell I was doing. I don't know why I did it. I, I had nothing against John. I had nothing against the Beatles. I was kind of surprised my bullets were working. I don't really remember aiming. I don't remember pulling the hammer. Uh, and I remember thinking, wow, my bullets are working. But Mark Chapman, it's interesting, it's what Mark Chapman doesn't say, Robbie, that's really important. What Mark can never say, and he's been asked this a few times, sometimes on camera, is what did John do 
when the bullets hit him, Mark. And he, he sort of, and you can see him getting confused. He's like, uh, I don't know. I think he, I think he got in the building because that's what he's been told, obviously, over the years. Everyone knows John somehow got in the building. We'll get to that in a moment as well. But he doesn't really know. And they sort of go, well, did he, did he fall when the bullets started to hit him? Did he react? And Mark has no idea. He has literally no idea. So how did he, how did he pull it off? How did this cold, calculated killer hit John four times? Now, the official narrative, if you go by the autopsy, because there was a press conference and a lot of details about the autopsy have now come out, is John got shot two times in the back and they slightly tweaked it now and they say two times in the left shoulder. But it's always, again, from behind. So it's not from the front. If you talk to the doctors and nurses who actually treated John, he got shot four times in a tight professional grouping just above his heart. But really importantly, Robin, let's get into this. The, sub, the left subclavian artery, which is a major artery that goes into your, into your aorta, which is connected to your heart, was completely severed, completely. All of them say this. The doctors and nurses who we know actually treated John, Dr. Lin, the lying doctor, who didn't help treat John, but he was there in the room, and he, he also said the wounds were catastrophic, he would have died instantly. Elliot Gross, a chief medical officer who's often been accused of falsifying autopsies in his career, even he said, death would have happened very quickly. So the doctors and nurses are the ones that I, I take most, credit, most credence from. And they say to me, instant death, instant. With those kind of wounds, with your, you know, your left side would just suddenly go, you, your, your heart was damaged. His heart wasn't actually damaged, his heart was intact, but a lot of the vessels around the heart were gone, were blown away. There was, breathing would have been almost impossible. So what we're being asked to believe here, Robbie, and this is at the heart, of the case, and my book will lay all this out very clearly. We're being asked to believe that Mark Chapman did all this damage, okay, in a driveway before John has got into the building. Okay, so he's now got all these big wounds. His subclavian artery is gone. What they want us to believe is this. They want us to say, because they have to, because Mark has to shoot him in the driveway. He can't shoot him in the building, obviously, because Mark's out on the street. They want us to believe that John, with these wounds, pulled open a vestibule door Okay, a glass panel vestibule door, walked into this little porch area, walked up six fairly steep steps, goes through two more mahogany doors, which are, were quite thick doors. They're not like the little vestibule thin doors. These are quite thick doors. Let's be kind and say they're open, but it was winter. They were probably shut. They were on a closer. I know that for a fact, but they might have been open. Let's go with it. They're open. So he's gone through that. He's now in a lobby. He's looking at the lobby. On John's left is a desk. Okay, the lobby desk, and on the right is, is a door to the apartments. Just on the extreme left of that desk is a little swinging door, which if you go through, you get into what's called the concierge's front office, which is an open plan front office behind the front desk. John allegedly goes into the lobby area. He turns an extreme left, goes through a swinging door. He's not finished yet. He then runs through the concierge's, let's say staggered, through the concierge's front office, says to the concierge, Jay Hastings, I've been shot twice. I've been shot. I've been shot. Keeps on this amazing journey into the back office, what they call the superintendent's back office. Somehow gets through that door. Must have been open. Let's be kind. And he was found by all the cops that found him inside that office, not in the doorway, in the office, face down on a rug, bleeding out. Now, how the hell? Did a man with those injuries go from that driveway to that back office? And that is at the heart 
of what really happened that night. If you pardon my pun, I didn't want to use the word heart, but that is that that's the key. You need to figure out how John got from there to there because he didn't do what they said. It's impossible. All the medical people, even the disgraced medical people said death would have with those wounds, with those four big holes, death would have happened almost instantly. And to give you an example of that, look what happened to Lee Harvey Oswald. When Lee Harvey Oswald got shot in the stomach, I believe it was, by Jack Ruby, what happened to him? He went over like a sack of spuds. He went over like a sack of potatoes within two, three seconds. If you look at Hinckley's attempt on Ronald Reagan, there's a uh, Secret Service officer, I forget his name, Tim something, uh, McAvoy maybe, Tim something. But anyway, big guy, big, you can't miss him. I'll put the, uh, the video on my YouTube channel. Big guy in a light blue suit, lovely 1981 light blue suit. Massive guy, probably ex-Special Forces. When Hinckley starts shooting wildly, Bravely, this guy gets in between Hinckley's bullets and Reagan, right? And he gets hit with a bullet, just one bullet from Hinckley's gun, which apparently clips his lung and clips his, possibly his liver, I'm not sure. It clips two organs, but just one bullet. What happens to the guy when he gets one bullet put into him? Not four, all around his heart, just one. He's on the deck. He collapses instantly. This is a big, massive Secret Service guy. John Lennon was a heavy smoker, skinny guy, okay? He did not make that journey. And when you figure out how he made that journey, you're halfway to figuring out partly what is behind his assassination. You mentioned Mark Chapman. You don't think he was supposed to live. No. reason I say that, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is... Chapman laid out a, a display in his hotel room, which even he has admitted over the years seemed like a, a suicide kind of note. Goodbye. Here's, here's my favorite photos. Here's my favorite Todd Rundgren tape. Here's this is me, and I'm I'm not coming back. Yeah. And what what the NYPD and the DA's office failed to tell people, by the way, Robbie. Now we're on the hotel display. They failed to tell people that there were 122 unidentified pills in Mark Chapman's hotel room. And some of those unidentified pills were red pills, which is Thorazine. And Thorazine is the drug they use for mind control. Same one they found at Jonestown, too, by the way. Good old Thorazine. There was about 30, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but a third of those 122 pills were red, unidentified, uh, and concealed. That was covered up. That was covered up by the DA's office, and it was covered up by the NYPD. And the reason why it was covered up was because we know that, because they couldn't wait to tell the world about Mark's weird hotel display where he put a Bible out and he put out the Wizard of Oz, a picture of the Wizard of Oz. and he put, Oh, isn't he weird? Oh, what a weirdo. Yeah, this is the kind of weirdo that would kill someone. But they forgot to mention the pills. And the reason I know they've got pills in those rooms, I've got the evidence voucher from that hotel room where pills are clearly labelled. Three, three batches of unidentified pills. And strangely enough, a bottle of Vaseline which is a very strange thing for a young man to have in New York um, uh, in 1980. But there you go. We'll, we'll, we'll gloss over that. that. That's for other people to discuss. But getting back to why I think Mark Chapman was meant to, meant, to, uh, meant to run, not meant to live, I believe they wanted him to run, and I believe they were going to take him out either in Central Park across the road or somewhere along the street. And the reason why I think this is Jose Padermo, even, even Mark has admitted this, Jose Padermo said to Mark, Get out of here. Just get out of here. 
Now, this is probably after Mark's gun, alleged gun, is on the floor. Because remember, when the cops turned up, Mark didn't have a gun on him. It was taken away by a co-worker. So Mark doesn't have a gun. He shot out, allegedly, his five bullets, right? He's docile. He's kind of standing there in a daze. And Jose Padermo, this bullish, big, wide Cuban, who apparently was pretty handy, he decides, instead of just arresting this guy, and grabbing him and putting him on the deck and doing what anyone would do if he was supposed to do his job as a security guard. Now, he decides to say to him, get out of here, just get out of here. And Mark allegedly said, where would I go? Right? And I think, so that was a problem. We now know, because I've got the statements from Ron Hoffman's notebooks, that another witness called Nina Rosen just passed the driveway when she heard gunfire. So she doubles back quite quickly, probably I'd say between five and 10 seconds after gunfire. And Ina Rosen is, is a witness statement that has been concealed for many, many years. Albert Goldman, uh, Lennon biographer, revealed a few details about the statement, but I've now got the full statement. And what Nina Rosen says is really interesting. She says there was no gun. And there should really be a gun at that point because this the whole thing about Mark dropping a gun and Jose coming up to him and Jose kicking it allegedly to the back of the driveway. She didn't see any of that. He might have kicked it. Let's be kind. So there's no gun, no Lennon. That's a problem, but you know, apparently he's doing his magical mystery tour runs. So let's just go with that. Yoko is in the courtyard, which is an area behind the behind the driveway, screaming. Now that's a problem because Yoko Ono, in her statement, says immediately after gunfire, she followed John in. Jay Hastings, the concierge, has always said that when John came running in, staggering past him, telling him he'd been shot, Yoko came in one or two seconds after. That's not true. We know that's not true. Because we have another witness who said she heard Yoko screaming in the courtyard. So Yoko went running, I think, behind the vestibule into the courtyard and started screaming where Nina Rosa saw them. But Yoko wants the world to believe she went running in after her husband straight away. But let's get back to Chapman and the suicide. Uh, Chapman and the um, meant to run. Nina Rosen then heard another thing. Nina Rosen heard Jose Padermo, the doorman, say to Mark Chapman, the police are going to be in a couple of minutes. You need to get out of there now. That's a bit more detail. He's put a bit more sauce on it now. He's kind of, it's almost like he's pleading. The cops are coming. Get out of here. Now, that is basically accomplice to me. Saying to someone who's in on, or saying to someone who knows there's an operation going down, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing here, my friend. You're not supposed to be getting arrested. You're supposed to do what we programmed you to do and get the hell out of here. But Mark didn't. What Mark then did was, because I think he was, his brain was malfunctioning, he got out Catcher in the Rye, started reading it. He said all the words were going gobbledygook on the page couldn't really focus on it and he stood there waiting for the, the cops to turn up and arrest him but i think he was meant to run i think he was programmed to run i think jose padermo urged him to run because i think a second team was waiting it would even be, would have been a a rookie cop saving the public from this crazed guy running running off you know and he, he kind of chased him and he shot him and he shot john lennon's killer and he's dead now so you know brave hero cop who did it or it might have been a kind of, I don't know, a vigilante who attacked Mark Chapman, who came at him with a gun, and the vigilante killed Mark. But whatever it was, I think they had someone waiting, whichever way they did it. They had a Jack Ruby waiting to take him out. I'm convinced of that. Because what they didn't want, what they really didn't want, is Mark Chapman living and going to the police and giving his statement where he just didn't really understand what he did. And the people that were desperate to get into his cell, Robbie, and there was very interesting people that my book will reveal that were very desperate to get into his cell, reveal themselves, because I believe they might be the conspirators going, do you know what? Oh, dear. This has gone wrong. He's now in police custody. 
What does he remember? Does he remember his programming? Does he remember the fact he didn't actually shoot John? Does he remember that someone inside the vestibule shot John, which is where I believe John was shot? We need to get someone in there ASAP. And they really did work very hard to get into his cell ASAP. And then getting back to what you were saying earlier, Robbie, about Milton Klein, I think with Klein, what's interesting about Klein is, I think once they got people in there and they remember his wife, Gloria, Robbie as well, rang up the police station that night before his name was released. She rang him up and had a nice little cozy chat with him. How the hell she got that number? How the hell she got through? We'll never know. I believe there's a fair bit of evidence now that she was probably put up to check in to see. I could see how people might believe this. I, I can't say this for sure. and I, I don't want to be accused of saying that she's part of the plot. But it, was, it made a lot of people, including the lieutenant in the station that night, a guy called Arthur O'Connor. The minute that phone call came in, Robbie, after O'Connor, he went, this is a conspiracy. I can't believe this woman's ringing in here to check in with how her husband's doing. How did she get the number? What's going on here? And he was convinced at that point it was a conspiracy. Um, so what's really interesting about, about that is, I, I think, beyond Mark do, giving his statement and he got put into a cell, and then certain people got into his cell very early. My book will go into them. But I think beyond that, they needed to do another thing, Robbie, that was really important. They needed to, they basically needed to check in with Mark to make sure he didn't remember what, what he was doing and how he got there. But they also needed to make sure, absolutely sure, that there wasn't going to be a trial. Because if there was a trial, all the stuff that my book lays out about the dodgy forensics, about the two bullets in John Lennon's body, about the fact John was shot in the front and Chapman thinks he shot him in the back, about bullet holes that shouldn't be there in the Dakota driveway, about dodgy, dodgy uh, conflicting statements from the people that Dakota that were working there that night. All this stuff would have come out. Mark Chapman didn't even have a gun on him when the police turned up. And, you know, it, 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 was, it was a joke. Any, any lawyer worth his salt would have got Mark off, in, I think, in a few minutes. But what's interesting is the lawyer that was first given to Mark was a lawyer called Herbert Adlerberg, who was a public lawyer. Old guy, old school, bit out of his depth. He got death threats, okay? First couple of days he was doing the job, he got lots of death threats, which he admitted in the 90s. He didn't admit it at the time, but he admitted on TV in the 90s that, yeah, I got death threats, they scared me, I, I decided to walk away from the case. The next guy who came in to defend him was a public lawyer, way out of his depth, didn't do this kind of size case before, a guy called Jonathan Marks, right? He worked in 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Now, Jonathan Marks should never have got this gig as, as, a, as, a, as a private lawyer. There's much better private lawyers. But for some reason, Marks was the guy who was given the job, Jonathan Marks. Now, another thing you should know about 30 Rockefeller Plaza, Robbie, is there's a company that used to work in 30 Rockefeller Plaza called Donovan, Newton, Irvin and Leisure. Okay? And Donovan, Newton, Irvin and Leisure was the CIA's law firm. It was basically set up by Wild Bill Donovan, of all people, the guy who actually set up the CIA. William Colby, a CIA director, worked at that law firm. This law firm was awash with CIA spooks, okay? It was their pet law firm. One of the guys who worked there, a guy called David Suggs, went to help as an assistant for Jonathan Marks. Now, there might be nothing nefarious about these two guys. It was in the same building. Maybe Marks just went down the floor and said, hey, you got a guy who can help me? I'm a bit out of my depth doing this March Chapman case. And David Suggs went to work with him, and, and they may not have understood what was going on. But the problem that Jonathan Marks has got is the person that – one of the people that he chose to go into March Chapman's cell – was a psychiatrist slash hypnotist called Milton Klein, who you mentioned earlier, right? Now, the problem we've got with Milton Klein is the main problem is he's, he was a consultant for the CIA on their Manchurian candidate program. He literally said he can make a patsy within three months. You got it. I mean, this guy is is as horrible as they get. He, he was their guy. He was their Manchurian candidate guy. That, that was who he was. He just happens to walk into Mark Chapman's cell. But what's interesting, the reason why Jonathan Monks, I think, has got a bit of a problem is he can't just say, oh, I didn't know who this guy was. 
had no idea, you know. I could easily see him saying now, yeah, I, I put him in there under good faith. I was told he was a good hypnotist. I was told he could help my client. But the problem that Jonathan Marks has got is he used him the year before. He used him on a case the year before in 1979. And in 1979 was when Milton Klein went on that documentary we were just talking about, boasting about him being a CIA consultant who could create a murderer. Are you trying to tell me that they have a professional relationship, Jonathan Marks and Milton Klein, obviously, because Klein used him. Klein was used by Marks in 79. Are you trying to tell me that Klein and Jonathan Marks didn't have a conversation about who Klein had worked for in the past and what he'd done in the same building? Of course they did. Jonathan Marks must have known he was a CIA consultant. Jonathan Marks must have known he was a Manchurian candidate expert. Yet Jonathan Marks puts him in Mark Chapman's cell. They closed the door. Jonathan Marks, it was bra brazenly, he actually did a, there was a thing, I think it was in the New York Post, pretty sure it was the New York Post, uh, uh, you know, about a day, two days after Jonathan Marks got the gig, killer to be hypnotized. He did it in plain sight. He even publicized what he was going to do on the front page of the New York Post. In, and of course, every single journalist that read that, and I think it was December the 12th when that paper came out, four days after the murder, not one journalist because Milton Klein's name was mentioned, not one of those journalists, to their utter shame, Robbie, checked out who this Milton Klein was and gone, Christ, this guy was on a documentary last year boasting about being a Manchurian candidate CIA consultant who can create a killer. Not one of them checked him out. It was front page, New York Post. In Klein goes, shuts the door. Now, what was Klein doing in there? We didn't really know. What we do know, what we were told is six months later, in June, just before it was going to go to trial, two weeks before trial. So they were getting desperate now. They had to make sure this didn't happen. Mark allegedly rings up Jonathan Marks and says, uh, I want to plead guilty because God told me to plead guilty. I heard a little voice in my head. So we thought, okay, that's Mark's a bit crazy. And most people bought that story. Um, Fenton Bresler bought it in his book in the late 80s. But what we found out through uh, another journalist called Jim Gaines, uh, who wrote some articles in 1987, Jim Gaines gave a little, a little insight into what Milton Klein was talking to Mark Chapman about. And one thing Gaines revealed that Klein was talking to Chapman about was this alleged fantasy, imaginary little kingdom that Mark had in his head. And this little kingdom was uh, a kingdom that Mark in his head could control. So you had like a government and you had like, there's a whole world allegedly, and Mark could control this world in his imagination. So that was interesting. So you read that in the Gaines thing. Okay, John, uh, Milton Klein was discussing this little people, Kingdom of Mark. Now, we know from all Mark's friends and family, before the murder, Mark never mentioned a little kingdom people thing. Certainly Mark's wife and various friends now have come out of the closet and gone, oh, yeah, he's always into his little people thing. He wasn't. It's a new concept that Milton Klein was discussing with him in 1981. It was never a previous thing he discussed with friends and family. So... I kind of left it at that. But then I found some details about Mark's appeal because Mark, I think, realized that he'd been played. And I think in the mid 80s, Mark probably thought, Do you know what? I need to get out of this prison. I need to go to a nice, cushy mental institution. So I'm going to play that I'm I was mentally impaired and I want to get off. Mark's Jonathan Mark's at this point didn't want to get involved, possibly got too involved previously. So another lawyer took on the case. And what came out of that appeal, Robbie, or my research on that appeal, is one of the appeal lawyers revealed the real truth about what Mark Chapman's God telling him to plead guilty was all about. It wasn't just God. They, they forgot to tell us some details, Robbie. What Mark Chapman said was the reason he wanted to plead guilty 
wasn't gold whispering in his ear. It was much more detailed than that. Mark said the night before he imagined a war taking place on the cell floor, on his cell floor. Of, uh, it was a war by the little people, allegedly. And God's forces of the little people and the devil's forces of the little people had this battle in front of Mark that he was imagining. And the God's forces won the battle. Now, the winning general of God's forces then allegedly gets up into Mark's palm. This is what Mark said happened. Or he thought, obviously, he was hallucinating, thought it was happening. And the little general whispered into Mark's ear, plead guilty. Plead guilty for God. God wants you to plead guilty. And this concept of little people that made Mark Chapman plead guilty and not go to trial and all the information that I've been talking about for six months and what's going to be in my book would have come out. This is the reason he didn't go. And this concept was put into his brain by the one and only MK Ultra Manchurian candidate consultant Milton Klein. And this stuff for me, it's it's clear now. It's as clear as day that Klein and Bernard Diamond, another nefarious hypnotist who was in Siren Siren's cell and Siren Siren's life, he was put in there. There's another guy called uh, Bloom, Dr. Bloom. He was put in there as well, another hypnotist with nefarious military links. Even the prosecution had a, a hypnotist called Emmanuel Hammer who was put in there, who was all about hypnotic suggestion. He was put in there. So Mark had four known hypnotists placed in his cell and they were allowed to shut the door. Now, what's interesting about the ones that are in there, Robbie, they, there are tape recordings of Mark talking to these hypnotists, which I suspect may come out on um, future TV shows. But what, what we're being asked to believe with these tape recordings from these Milton Klein, Bernard Diamond conversations is, we're being asked to believe that these were independently assessed and the play, the record button was recorded, was pressed down at all times. So they are not going to, what they won't be, I'm almost, I'm almost certain what they won't be is they won't be the full, unredacted, fully transcripted conversation from the second one of those hypnotists got into his cells, the second they left his cell, every day they were going in there. Because remember, Robbie, they had him for six months. So we're not going to have six months worth of transcripts with these hypnotists. We're going to have a selected, and I know this for a fact because the tapes were given to Jim Gaines, the guy who wrote the 87 people like So Jim Gaines has had possession of these tapes for a long time. He was aiming to write a book with Jonathan Marks, of all people, do you believe? Jonathan Marks got cold feet. I think it's a very good idea Jonathan Marks did get cold feet because I think if that book came out, a lot of people would have shut a spotlight on Jonathan Marks more than they have in the past. And I hope my book will shine a spotlight on Jonathan Marks a lot more now going forward. But, but getting back to these tapes of Mark Chapman, there is going to be a concerted effort, I believe, in the coming years. I think these tapes will be further circulated because I think what they'll probably say, and I've only heard bits of them, is they'll probably say things like, yeah, I killed him for fame. I killed him for this. I killed him for that. Yeah, I, I don't know why I did it. I'm a nasty man. I'm evil. God, devil made me do it. Blah, blah, blah. Catching the ride made me do it. Blah, blah, blah. What they won't do is they won't prove that what Mark says on those tapes weren't instigated by hypnotists who we know were highly skilled hypnotists. So you have to remember that these tapes and these recordings are coming from hypnotists who are linked to intelligence agencies. So, you know, this, this is where I, th I think what I'm now preempting, Robbie, before my book comes out or as my book's now coming out is I I'm preempting how they're going to strike back and how they're going to, the little people, Milton Klein thing, I think is a big problem with the official narrative. And I think people didn't want that to come out. And I think now that is out, I suspect it's going to be belittled 
and uh, put to one side through these tape recordings of these hypnotists that they took with Mark in his cell. But of course, remember, there was no independent assessors, uh, uh, Robbie, with these hypnotists in Mark's cell after he was arrested. They were in there totally on their own, freestyling, door shut. We'll press record when we feel like pressing record. And um, I think everything Mark has said after the first night, after his statement on the first night, he's confused. I don't know why the hell I did it statement on the first night. Everything beyond that to me is, I wouldn't say worthless, but you're, you're now talking about Mark after he's been, you know, um, got at by various nefarious people who had him all to themselves. And remember, it was an open season, Robbie. People could ring into Mark at the time. Mark could ring out. People could come and visit him at Rikers or Bellevue, shut the door. The, the writer Fenton Bresler, who revealed all this in the late 80s in his book, was horrified because he, he, he was a barrister. Fenton Bresler. He knew about the law. He could not understand as someone who was up for trial was allowed to be got at by anybody whenever. He was just literally shocked. He, he, he couldn't, and, and, and we're being led to believe that anything this guy says beyond the point that Milton Klein and Bernard Diamond and all these other evil hypnotists got their hands on him is actually credible. But I think that's what I think that's where they're going to go now. Because if you look at the the Jack Jones is another journalist who recorded Mark in prison and the Jim Gaines tapes, which came from the psychiatrist and hypnotist who spoke to him. If you look at the way they've used those tapes and they have Jack and jo Jack Jones and Jim Gaines are the two journalists who pretty much created the whole Mark Chapman myth. And they've used these tapes very selectively to have Mark saying things like, yeah, I, I kind of wanted fame and yeah, I kind of did it because of capturing the rye and all this. But you have to understand another thing, Robbie. I've spoken to a lot of friends. Some who are very scared and want to remain anonymous. And these friends have told me that Mark is desperate to get out of prison, Robbie. Desperate. And he will say anything to any journalist or any, any reporter or any parole officer that he thinks will get him out of jail. He'll say anything. He'll say, yeah, I did it for fame. I did it for this. I did it for that. All he wants to do is get out. And in his last paroles, he was even talking about, yeah, I deserve to be hung. I deserve the death penalty. So like, why are you saying that? Because that's what he's told to say. He has a couple of what I would call handlers who are still handling him today. And I'll reveal who these people are in my book. And I'll let people decide whether these handlers have got Mark's best interests at heart or not. I'll let people come to their own conclusion on that. Can I ask what was the hardest interview for you to be able to do? track down anybody i mean we talked about the media trying they had all, all this resource to reach out to any of these people i know dr halloran didn't step out until way later and kind of still remains a little bit silent but i'm wondering if you had any complicated was it mark chapman's friends and family was it anything yeah yeah it's a good question um yeah some of his friends are scared um i think some of his friends are kind of they know a little bit more than they want to know uh, and they don't like the way Mark has been handled throughout his post-arrest life. Uh, they they see things that concern them. Let's put it that way. And they're very, very concerned about going on the record. Is that, I mean, I'm only talking three or four people. Most people have gone on the record, which is great. But I find it interesting that Mark's friends are the ones that are most concerned. Um, I think with regards to difficult um, interviews, I, I think yeah, it, it is, it's always difficult when you do this, Robbie, because you can't. You go in the way I did it, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm not a journalist, by the way. I'm a news researcher. I'm, I'm not a qualified journalist. I'm, I'm a TV producer. I've worked in news. I, I kind of know how it works, but I wouldn't call myself a qualified journalist. So I'm kind of doing it on the fly, to be honest. 
But the way I've done it is I've kind of gone in there in the initial interviews and just let them freestyle and just kind of give them some very open questions and let them feel comfortable. And then I obviously I record those conversations and I go back and I assess them and I pick out inconsistencies. And I think what you've got to do is if anyone's thinking about doing this in the future, what's worked for me is you, you have to build up a relationship with these people. You're not going to get what you want the first call or the second call. It's only when they start to trust you and you go into call three, call four, call five that you kind of start, they start to open up and give you some more stuff. And then what happens is, and what's happened a lot on this, is a lot of statements conflict with others. And you have to kind of, you can learn a lot by saying to someone, okay, you said that, but someone else has said something completely contradictory. What do you say about that? They tend to sort of go, well, they're lying uh, or they've, they've forgotten or, you know, and they tend to get defensive, which is interesting. Uh, and I think with regards to the most difficult one, I think the book will reveal which is the most difficult one, because there's certain people that my book will reveal where I actually I felt compelled, Robbie. To actually contact them quite recently and say, look, my book's done. Uh, it's coming out. Uh, you don't look good. It doesn't look good for you. Is there anything you want to say now before it comes out? Because what other people are saying doesn't look good for you. Uh, now, at the very at the very minimum, you're going to be called a liar. But beyond that, you might be called something else. So do you want to retract the statement or do you want to tell me some more stuff? And pretty much everyone, Robbie, has kind of gone back to that. I was saying very early in our conversation, they've got the Cuban cigar out. And I think they think they're safe. I think they're going, yeah, that's fine. I'll stick by what I said. I'm going, I'm going with it. And, um, you know, I'm not bothered, was a phrase I was told. Um, so we'll see how bothered they'll be when when the public gets to read all the statements and, and gets to kind of assess what, what they believe is true and what they believe isn't true. Because the problem is, Robbie, you've got Yoko Ono, you've got the concierge Jay Hastings, you've got the lift elevator operator Joseph Manny, you've got various cops who turned up pretty quickly on the scene. And then you've got these secondary witnesses who sort of saw the scene immediately after gunfire, like Nina Rose and a couple of people in from the building across the road. All of their statements, Robbie, pretty much don't match up. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? There's all there's inconsistencies in all their statements. So what you have to do is you have to kind of you have to figure out what is the most likely. And I, I'm I'm pleased to say I've got a my book will give you a pretty good idea, I think, of what really happened. And I think when people figure that out, I think they're going to be really disturbed and worried and angry um and i i you know again getting back to what i said earlier robbie you know, i wasn't looking for any of this i was i had no theories i certainly didn't have a theory about a second shooter i i at best i thought really might be a brainwashed guy and, and chapman did the shooting but that clearly didn't happen so what, once you figure that out once you figure out chapman didn't do it and Ch but chapman thinks he did it you know okay how, how could that happen well, the only way that could happen, Bobby, is, is he was brainwashed into, you know, he's had a psychotic episode that was that was induced via drugs, which we know he had in his hotel room. And we know that he spent his whole life, Robbie, around hypnotists, his whole life, from the age of 15 to the day of the murder. And after the murder, I just told you about all the guys who piled into his police cell or the hypnotists who were queuing up to get in to see him. So you just can't get away from the fact that the guy was hypnotized from a very young age to that point. And I, I believe there's lots of Mark Chapman's, Robbie. 
at that point. I hope that I hope the mentoring candidate um, program is over now, but I can't really see it being over. Can you? Can you see the intelligence agencies just putting that one to bed? They just got better. It's, at it. a, it's a nice little tool, isn't it? In the toolbox, you know, we developed it after the Second World War, and uh, you know, we kind of here it is now. And I just think Chapman was just another one off the shelf. Pick him off, and Lennon's coming back into the recording studio. Ronnie's looking like he's going to win the election in November. Let's activate him and see. Let's see how this one works out. And, and if it goes well, maybe it could be a dry run. Some people could say for what happened in March with John Hinckley trying to take out Ronald Reagan, who's another guy who just reeks of being a Manchurian candidate. Was it in that video with John Hinckley where they were like covering his face and shoving him in the car? Yeah, it's interesting with Hinckley. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't done an awful lot of research in Hinckley just because I've been so obsessed and busy with doing the Lennon stuff. But, you know, he, he was very quickly jumped on and driven away. I think that was John Hinckley, for sure. But if you look at some videos of John Hinckley now, because obviously he's out talking to the media, he says very similar things to Mark Chapman. It's like, I don't really remember much about it. Kind of, mm, I, I, I think I, I kind of remember shooting. I don't remember what happened to the people that I shot. Yeah, and, and his eyes are gone. What's interesting about Hinckley is the lights are on, but there's nothing there. There's no one in. It's, 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 it's clearly he's had some awful uh, psychiatric work on him. He looks like a zombie to me now. Uh, and I just think they had 40 years to kind of make sure he was going to forget everything that happened before that assassination and everything that happened immediately afterwards. Um, he, I mean, and you, you, know, you can't get away from the fact you've got people like George Bush Sr. lurking in the background an ex-CIA director from three years earlier who would have known all about MKUltra and all about all the other things that the intelligence agencies could do in the 60s and 70s. Um, it's just there's some horrible connections between Hinckley and Chapman. And, of course, Hinckley had Catcher in the Rye in his um, cell. And what was interesting about, uh, not his cell, his hotel room, and what was interesting about when that was discovered, that there was a Catcher in the Rye in Hinckley's hotel room, that's when Mark Chapman's, um, how can I put it, um, associates let's call it that uh decided because up until that point what's interesting is robbie they were kind of happy to go along with chapman and his catcher in the rice stuff they're like, oh, yeah yeah catch it great yeah yeah promote it's a great bookmark you should promote it you know you're going to promote it you you kill him and it's about that book, book tour book mark. tour yeah yeah they actually said to him one of them so i think it might be klein or diamond they said um you can yeah just imagine mark you go into like a stadium and you could come in on a chariot and you can have the book Say, ah, oh, I'm promoting this amazing book. So they, they were kind of doing all this stuff. But then in March, it changed. The minute Hinckley happened, it was like, we need to get off Catcher because now Catcher is associated with another assassination. We can't have that. People might start looking into who Salinger was. They might start looking into how when Mark Chapman got this book. And he got it. He basically got obsessed with that book in, in the summer of um, 1980. The, the, the legend is the official narrative wanted to believe that he was always obsessed about it as a child. Absolutely not untrue. Absolutely untrue because we know, because Fenton Bresler spoke to everybody, spoke to every journalist who went to Mark's hometown the day after the murder, spoke to all of, friend, all, all of Mark's family and friends, some are now sadly dead, and every single one of them, Robbie, said, no, nah, he's never mentioned Catcher. He wasn't really a reader. He's more into rock music. Never mentioned the book once. So that, that was an invention. They had to say that. He was always obsessed with it because they don't want you to think he somehow got obsessed with John Lennon and, and that Catcher in the Rye book in the summer of 1980. Then you might think, well, it's, it's almost like a trigger. And they did. They fused it. What they did was they fused the phony in that book, uh, Holden Caulfield's hatred of phonies, the lead character in that book, 
with John Lennon being a phony because he, it was a twin obsession that was, I think, programmed into Mark in August 1980. The twin obsession was you're now Holden Caulfield. You hate all phonies in the world. And John Lennon, the guy who you, you dislike for various things, his Christian stuff and all that. There's a Christian element to this, which my book will go into. He's a phony. And he's the world's ultimate phony, Mark. And what you're going to do is you're going to take out the world's ultimate phony to prove how fantastic this book is. And I believe that was a very much a prearranged program thing, which is why he had to have Catcher that morning, why he had to go and buy that book. And he had to bring that book uh, with him uh, to the murder and why he um, immediately got the book out after them, after John Lennon's assassination. Um, but again, getting back to what they were doing with him, th three months in, once Hinckley did what Hinckley did, uh, what happened was then they kind of worked into what I call in the book Project Demon, where they decided to gaslight Mark into thinking that he was obsessed, uh, not obsessed, he was possessed by demons. And it became a, a battle between Jesus and Mark and the, the demons. And what the people who did what I call Project Demon did to Mark, it's just the most disgusting uh, bit of gaslighting I've ever seen, where he was given exorcisms by prison guards. He, uh, he was given remote exorcisms, allegedly, by people outside his cell. He had these hucksters coming in, these bloody DIY exorcists, convincing him that he was possessed and he needed to have constant, you know, exorcisms to get. And he, he, he talks about vomiting on his prison floor and visions of demons coming out of him, which could only have been induced, I think, by drugs. Gloria, his wife, got involved. She started to talk about his demons and she kind of went to, she wrote to him about how she could feel the demons in him. And it, it worked. It worked, Robbie. It worked. Catcher was expunged. Uh, Mark, for the next sort of 25, 30 years, said, yeah, demons did it. Did it for demons. Yeah, I, I was possessed, but now I'm I'm clean and I'm, I'm, I'm on the righteous path now. Uh, and in the last sort of 10 years, what's interesting, because I study this, Robbie, they, they've kind of tried to move a little bit away from the demons thing now. And they've managed to get Mark to talk about doing it for fame and for glory again. Because all, all these all these theatres of reasons come through his paroles. So they sort of, whenever there's a parole, his first parole started, I think, in, um, in 2000. He's had about 13 cents. And if you study his paroles, the initial first one is kind of like, yeah, I don't know why I read it. And then each, each, each second year when they come up, he starts to kind of fluctuate between demons did it, I did it for fame, I did it for this, I did it for that. But I've spoken to his friends about those paroles, Robbie. And basically what Mark does at those paroles is, because I think, again, I think this is going to be a feature of the Lennon official narrative bolstering in the coming months and years. They'll, they'll read out these paroles as proof that Mark is atoning. Mark was saying in these paroles whatever he was told to say, and he was saying it because he was told that if he said these things, he's had a better chance of getting out. Because the myth that some journalists will have you believe is, especially Jack Jones who's been on the record and said this is, Mark doesn't really want to come out. He's, he's kind of happy where he is. It's not true. Mark is desperate to get out. Mark can't, he, he, he's, he's done 43 years and he wants to get out. And the people advising him, which my book will reveal, are advising him to say these different things, like catcher, demons, fame, this, that, and the other. Uh, and if you say you deserve the death penalty, they're going to look favorably on you, Mark. Um, 
So these are the things he's coming out with. His paroles are just crazy. Absolutely. They're, they're, you read his parole transcripts. It's like, this is, this, is, this is a man who's clearly mad now. And I think Mark probably is a little bit mad now, to be honest with you. I think he's, he's, he's had so much messing around with his brain, Robbie. I think for the last, well, we know from since he was, you know, um, arrested. But before that, now Mark was arrested at 25. But I, I've got evidence that people were messing with his brain when he was 15. So, you know, you're talking charismatic Christianity, right? That little yeah, movie. that's how they did it. Yeah. Fred Krauss. Yeah. Fred Krauss is a guy who's going to come out in my book, uh, a guy who um, was using charismatic Christianity and hypnotism to, again, to make Mark believe he was possessed by demons. Well, something Mark was something since really, we talked and we didn't really talk about it last time, but it was the YMCA. Um there's this uh, you mentioned the Christian element that you talk about in your book, but there is this wall between the public and information. And it happens to be do with anything religious. Um, typically, if you say someone's in a religious craze, people just bat their hands and walk away. Well, the YMCA thing, when you mentioned to me when we talk, I never really talked about it at all. But I found a document where there wasn't enough evidence to support that Lee Harvey Oswald had any affiliation or contacts, active contacts with the YMCA. That is in a document. I have that. We can, I can send it to you and everything like that. But there's that. And then there's what I've been learning about with Jonestown, where it was like this religious cult and this. It wasn't anything like that. I mean, everything in Jonestown was terrible. The hospital was the only nice thing. And every drug they found at the hospital was all the same drugs that were located in MK Ultra. I mean, it's it's weird because for me, like like I said, the main thing about like even Jonestown, which I'm new to, is it gets members as a mass suicide. Well, there were kids there and elderly people that could not feed themselves. So that turns into a mass murder. And then it becomes into they said the bodies were stacked the top of bodies. Look at the photographs. There's no bodies on top of bodies. They're all lined up in place right beside each other like they fell in a line. And it brings in question, well, Jonestown, Jim Jones, his best friend was Dan Mitrioni. And if you know who Dan Mitrioni is, he worked in the CIA and perfected the method of hooking a car battery up to someone's testicles. He worked in that whole interrogation program for the CIA. Now, that can be a weird connection. We can say that. But also, Jim Jones had multiple connections with high up Harvey Milk, all these people. Well, one of the people who was exposing it, much like how you're exposing some covert stuff that the government's up to, was Leo Ryan, part of the church committee. He goes down there and gets shot to death when he's about to open up another investigation into projects that the government's doing and limit their budget. Well, I, I think the Jonestown thing is, is I think there was a brilliant book, wasn't there, which is really hard to find online. I forget the, the author's name now, but there's a guy who pretty much exposed it all in a book. I, I'll, I'll send it to you. I'm sure you've read it. Um and I think Jonestown is about, I think it's it's ready, it's ripe to be reassessed. And I think you're right, when Leo Ryan went down there, that's when it all went south, because I think they realised they were about to get busted and they needed to just, you know, wipe everybody out. And, and you know, there's no evidence if everyone's dead. You know, the, the, the dead don't talk. So I think there was a lot of, there's a lot of compelling evidence that that was a CIA operative operation going on down there in Jonestown. And I think it, is, it was an operation that went south when Leo Ryan turned up. And um, yeah, the connection that I think we could go with Mark Chapman and John Lennon is people using religion to brain as a tool to uh, coerce, you could say, brainwash people into into going along with a particular doctrine or or thought process or even just a way of life. Let's face it, all those people down in Jonestown, I think I think a lot of them went there with good good intentions, kind of like it's like a Christian kibbutz, you know, so we're all going to 
live off the land and back to the old days and homesteaders and and it was obviously it was a lie and it was it was horrendous by a lot of accounts and it was it was a crazy man doing crazy things out of control and, and I think they were in there as a kind of with Jonestown as a kind of experiment basically and I think it's an experiment that went wrong the minute Leo Ryan turned up on the doorstep and I was like, oh, oh no this is this is now we're now about to get exposed um, but yeah I think religion is a great tool um, I think it's definitely used on Mark Chapman. Certainly in his teen years, when he was um, uh, very much open to that, uh, he had a conversion up, up until 15. Mark Chapman was heavily into LSD. And when he started to meet with this charismatic preacher uh, called Fred Krauss in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, his, in his home locale, um, that's when I think they realized that this guy who was heavily into LSD could be kind of his brain could be converted into into other beliefs and other thoughts mark, mark i think had a very pliable eager to please personality uh and i believe but he's often said and he's gone on the record of saying this to jim uh, to jack jones uh, that he found and his girlfriend at the time has said this that they both found those those sessions with kraus really disturbing and um and it, it was very much i think a part of starting to break mark chapman's mind and it was it was it was a path to get mark to start to believe that he had some kind of divine purpose in his life and that, that demons were a very real thing because exorcisms were very much part of what was going on in those prayer meetings. Uh, and I think that's where Mark's initial blooding as a kind of Manchurian candidate candidate um, uh, began. And then we know after that, he then went to Beirut very mysteriously. Uh, he then started to hang out with a guy called Dana Reeves, who was a guy who was a lot older than him, a nefarious guy who got him into guns and violence. Dana Reeves is, is, is another man of great interest. And then after that, of course, Mark went to Hawaii, where he went to Castlemore Hospital, where we now have a fair bit of good evidence that he was being put through brainwashing techniques and programs in Castlemore Hospital in Hawaii. Then Gloria turns up. And Gloria, some people could say, enabled a lot of what was going on in Mark Chapman's life. Uh, she was a travel agent. She could certainly book air airline tickets. We know she drove him, Gloria, to the airport um, uh, both times uh, when he went to, he, he had an aborted mission, or let's call it what it was. He called it a compulsion, uh, late October, early November, where he went to New York. Um, and for some reason, which my book will go into in more detail, he didn't go through with the, the murder. He actually didn't have any bullets. He had to fly down and see his friend Dana Reeves to get bullets famously. And fly back but he, he that mission was aborted he went back to gloria would you believe robbie he put the gun and bullets in front of gloria on a table and said to gloria um i uh, i went to new york i felt compelled to kill john lennon but thankfully i didn't do it and gloria decides that that wasn't a reason at that point to shop into the police or take him to a counselor she thought that was fine she thought that was just a blip uh, so then in late November, early December, when he decides to go for a second time, Gloria is quite happy to drive him to the airport uh, and doesn't think there's a problem with him going back to the same place that he said he was going earlier when he felt compelled to kill John Lennon. So Gloria, Gloria is a person of great interest. Uh, was she one that you sent an email to her? I, I have sent an email to Gloria, yeah. I, I sent an email to her very early on in the process. And I said to her, look, um, I found a lot of anomalies, Gloria, in your husband's case. Can you, uh, can we have a chat? I think, you know, you're, you're his, uh, at that point, I thought she was a kind of loving wife. Um, 
that's the that's the part she plays you know i'm I'm still here on the outside you know rooting for mark and we have you know we go and we have sessions together and we're still husband and wife in prison and you know i i i've forgiven him blah 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 um so this email i told her this stuff and uh she comes back with a very interesting reply robbie she says me and mark have considered your request no i never asked her to ask mark anything i was asking to talk to her not mark but I believe by her saying that, she was basically saying to me, if you want to get to Mark, you need to go through me. And I've since discovered that's the case. And one other person in my book will reveal. Uh, and she said, me and Mark, after much prayer, good old prayer, um, decided um, that we're not going to go forward with your request and talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the email. Love and kisses. No, she didn't put that. Um, best, best Gloria. Um, so um i thought that was a message to me that i'm in control here you're not you're not going to get to mark i can get to mark i've told mark not to talk to you now uh go away i'm not interested in any anomalies in his murder and i've talked to people who want to remain remain anonymous who know gloria she's not i don't think the loving wife she portrays herself to be let's put it that way do you uh, think that she's it, still triggering him with those prayer meetings no, the prayer meetings are long gone now. Uh, she, they very much, they do a kind of Christian outreach pamphlet thing for prisoners. Uh, they, they've got this kind of prison missionary gig going on, the pair of them, funded by other people of interest. Um, and they, um, they're, they're, they're just crass, Robbie. They're, they're pamphlets uh, with like the man who shot John Lennon on the front wants to tell you about Jesus. But, but the man who shot Lennon is done in this kind of frenzied font. It's just, it's just really crass really crass um and that's that's what they do uh i i i just think gloria she's a very interesting woman um and some would say that because she knew what he went to new york to do the previous time that you know by not stopping him the second time some could say perhaps she was an accomplice um and it's very interesting or at least an accessory to murder it's very interesting that she um she made that phone call when Mark was arrested, after a few hours, she rang into the station. I think that's quite interesting. Certainly, Lieutenant O'Connor, who was in the 20th precinct, the minute he saw that phone call going on in the early hours of the morning on December the 9th, said, it's a conspiracy. I can't believe this is happening. Um, and, um, yeah, she's uh, she's a woman of great interest. Well, how are we doing for time? Oh, wow, we're an hour and 44. Yeah, I was going to say, um, bringing it back to the book a little bit, uh distribution platforms where can people find it um if you left anything out if we're going to see a part two i know you're i'm already stuck up on a part two did you do the audio that's the main thing because if i buy it yeah, i want to get audio, the audio version yeah the audio is coming um we, you can get it on amazon it's pretty much available in every single country on amazon uh we are doing individual um uh, uh deals with individual countries uh so in the far east there's been a lot of demand for it so we're doing an individual deal per country outside of amazon for the printed book uh, so that's exciting. Uh, we got we got interestingly we got a much bigger response outside of the UK and US from publishers than we did in the UK and US. It was a lot harder in the UK and US to get a publisher. Uh, interestingly, one one publisher who shall be remain nameless in the UK. Uh, I was told this by my agent. She um, I said she. Uh, they um, they cried when they were given the the premise of my book. They they cried and they and they thought that was um, an appropriate response. Uh, and they thought somehow by crying, 
that they were somehow honoring John and their truth about his murder. They, could, they couldn't understand that someone would question his murder. Um, and I, I think that sums up a big problem with the modern world these days, that, that people switch to their emotions very quickly instead of their logical brain. Instead of actually assessing my book and what I was saying, they thought the best response would be to cry, break down in tears. And, and, that, and the reason apparently they cried was because they loved John so much. They were horrified that someone would question his murder and their truth, their, their personal truth about his murder that they believe. So, so you know, I was up against that. Uh, there will be an audio book uh, coming out next year. There'll be a Kindle as well coming out next year. With regards to a follow-up, yes, there will be, I think, because th there was just so much in Ron Hoffman's papers. I've got through most of it. I've got through most of the best stuff, but there's still a lot more. So what I might do, and I need to talk to a publisher about this, I might just get the whole thing transcribed and just put out as a second book or as an addition maybe to a second book, just so people can assess the notebooks and the paperwork themselves, you know. I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm not a trained journalist, so there might be better people out there who might, who might glean stuff from this more than I can. Um, I'm certainly not the be all and end all on this, on this subject, Robbie. I, I think I will certainly move the conversation forward, and I'm pleased about that. Um, but I see this book as like the first stage in a kind of awakening of the world to John Lennon's assassination. A bit like the early people did with the JFK thing, you know, your, your Mark Lanes and your, I forget their names now, but the very early um, pioneering researchers of JFK. Because what was interesting about JFK, as you know, Robbie, very quick, I mean, we're talking like days and weeks after people started coming out and going, this isn't right. This doesn't work, uh, especially when Ruby did his stuff. So that's not happened in, in the John Lennon assassination. There's never, there's, obviously there was a Bresler book, but I think what I want to happen, Robbie, is I want a whole army of new researchers, hopefully yourself included, uh, will use this book as a springboard to get this investigation reopened officially and, and push for it. Uh, and all these John Lennon fans who love Sergeant Pepper and they love the new remaster, and they love the new AI song. I just like just I just ask them all, just put can you put all that lovely music, and it is lovely music, just to one side, just for a moment, and just look into this and use your passion for John's music uh, into you know helping to get to the bottom of what happened uh, in his murder because it's it's still the most misunderstood murder, Robbie, I think out there most misunderstood famous murder. So many people just come out with stuff. I don't blame them. This is what they've been told or what, what they've, what they've you know, implied from what they've been told. is like, oh, Yoko saw it all. What's the problem? She must have saw it all. Or the doorman saw it all. Or people walking by saw it all. Or it's an open and shut case. It's like, it really isn't an open and shut case. It, it's, it's far from an open and shut case. And I hope people pick up the baton of the book and I hope they take it forward. Um, I'm kind of expecting very little because that's my, my my strategy in life robbie i i think if you expect too much you're just going to be disappointed so I, i've got low expectations and if anything great comes from it and there's a, a, a john lennon investigation movement that comes from it i will i will certainly try and assist that movement and help out as much as i can and I'll, obviously i'll be really glad to see that happen but i'm under no illusions that 43 years of lies and deceptions and bs official narrative documentaries, books and articles have been pumped out en masse for, you know, coming up to, you know, 40, 43 years now. 
And that's a lot of cognitive dissonance for people to get through. You know, it's it's been a very well-sold murder. Let's put it that way. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, will be shocked. And I think a lot of people will be angry. And a lot of people will hopefully take that anger and use it to look further. But I think an awful lot of people will take that anger and shock and they'll they'll go back to the records, to the comfort of Sergeant Pepper or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's fine. That's, that's, you know, people, everyone's different and everyone takes these things differently. And it's it's certainly not a obligation to understand what happened in John Lennon's assassination. It was a horrible, dark event. The more, the more I think about it, the more it disturbs me, you know, just how horrific that murder was and, and, and just the cold nature of it. And, and if, if, if it comes to pass that it gets proven that it was a conspiracy, it, it will shock people just as much as I think would be if JFK was ever admitted that it was a conspiracy. You know, because then you start to think, well, who could put this, who could put this together? And, you know, then the intelligence links come in. And then when you start talking about intelligence links, you start talking about military, and then you start talking about government. And then, of course, democracy, our lovely shining Western democracies, Robbie, start to look a little bit shaky. And they don't look as strong and, and as powerful and as all-knowing as I think they like to sell themselves as. So I can see why these things are covered up by the authorities. But, um, you know, John was a brave guy, Robbie. He was a really brave guy. He, he really was. I'm, I've, I've kind of had no feelings about him before I started this, but I've got great admiration for him. He didn't always get it right. He was, you know, he, but he was very open about his thoughts. But he was a seeker and he had an open mind and he really was a a guy who was prepared to put the hard yards in to find out about things and to express ideas to people through his music and his thoughts. Uh, and he deserves better, to be honest, Robbie. He deserves his murder not to have any anomalies. We need to know exactly what happened in that driveway. We need to know exactly who was behind Mark Chapman and, and what their motives were. And we don't know that yet. And my book's going to go mostly, it's going to allow most people to see all of that now. And um, but the official narrative, they've got one challenge. I'll finish on this, Robbie. They've got, a, they've got a challenge now, the official narrative. And I think people are going to demand that the official narrative peddlers actually lay out in clear black and white what happened in that driveway and where Mark was, where John was, what those bullet holes in that door mean, how did he go on this magical mystery tour, and why are all the... Why all the testimony from people on the ground conflicting? They need to make it all match. They need to explain exactly what happened. And then and they need to sell it so people can go, okay, I can now believe it. But I know for a fact, Robbie, they won't be able to do it because I, I've seen all the forensics. I know all the evidence from the statements. I know pretty much where everybody was and what everybody did. It's the official narrative is now, I think, completely discredited. And I think my book will do that. And it's not up to me to give the definitive statement about what really happened. It's up to the official narrative peddlers to now reconcile with what I'm saying and come up with something that we can all believe in. But I'm fairly certain they won't be able to do that. And I'll just sit back and watch. See now, what I, happens next. I'm appreciative person like yourself that's out there with the passion that you do to be able to research and uncover all this stuff for i'm definitely I'm, I'm hooked i mean i hope i get more kids of my generation hooked into it but you got to sell it as instead of sergeant peppers whatever you can have the this book which is the octopus's garden that's because that's what it is it's 
all these arms attached to so many different things and those connections, I mean, you line it up so perfectly, much like you've done in our last episode, much like you've done in this episode. And I mean, that type of work, I mean, just through doing the JFK stuff myself, it's not easy. There's a lot of documentation. You've done way more work in the John Lennon assassination than I could ever possibly do in the JFK stuff. And I'm pretty sure a lot of researchers have done on the JFK stuff, but your work is extraordinary and i'm really excited to i'm gonna l listen to the book but i don't have to read it first if it's going to be a year before that audio book comes out oh no it'll be, it'll be next spring i'll get the audio out next spring yeah it's, it's straight after christmas we're going in to do the audio so yeah we'll be soon but robbie thank you for all you do you know you you do amazing things you've got such an open mind you, you always ask brilliant questions you're so well briefed and you researched your research is great and you know keep going my friend don't stop what you're doing. You're doing great stuff. And uh, we, we'll, I'm, I've got a feeling me and you'll be talking again once once, once the book settles down, maybe maybe the other side of Christmas and we can, uh, there's going to be, yeah. I mean, we've got the Apple, we didn't mention the Apple TV series is coming up uh, on the 6th of December. Uh, the trailer, I've, I've done a review of the trailer on the Substack. Um, what's, what's good about this series, and I don't know what's going to be in it, is a lot of the people that I talk about in my book, like Richard Peterson, the cab driver, concierge Jay Hastings, lift operator Joe Manny, uh, Detective Ron Hoffman. I, I know because I spoke to them. They said they were talking on this series, so uh, they said they were, you know, having these interviews and and the, and the doctors and nurses. So these people are going to be on camera and on screen, and I think for the first time, people can actually once they read my book and they see these people on screen, they can see they can look into these people's eyes. And they can figure out who's who's telling the truth and who's not. And I think the, the series is going to be useful. I've no idea about which way they're going to go with it. Uh, the trailer was on the fence, but I think it's going to be well worth watching. And, and I'll, of course, I'll do a full review of the TV series on my Substack once it comes out, because I want to highlight to people what's worth noting in it. And I want to highlight to people that's what's missing, because there's bound to be stuff missing. But um, we'll see. We'll see. What's uh, your social media links for the people out there listening? Thanks, Robbie. Um, if they go to um, for my YouTube, it's Assassination of Lennon. Same for my um, Instagram, Assassination of Lennon. Um, my Substack is David Whelan uh, at Substack.com. That's W-H-E-L-A-N. And um, at Substack.com. And my Twitter is Lennon Murder because Assassination of Lennon was too many letters. So I'm um, sadly just Lennon Murder on Twitter, which isn't a particularly nice handle, to be honest, um, but it is what it is. Uh, so, yeah, please come and follow me. Please support Robbie, whoever's watching this, because you're great, man. I uh, really love what you do. And um, looking forward to talking again. We'll definitely be talking again. But thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank, and stay tuned for our next episode.